You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. This episode, a mini extra, is a slight detour from the usual Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast format. But don't worry, a new interview episode will come later this week. Last Saturday, 17th of March 2018, I gave a TEDx talk on coping with involuntary pauses at TEDx University of Glasgow. Several of you have asked me for that audio, and the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast is all about requests, so here it is. I hope you find it as useful as I did. As ever, you can submit your question to the podcast at any time at vickybrock.com slash podcast. Not all pauses are voluntary. The shock and sheer physicality of an involuntary pause can render the maps you've used to navigate your life to this point completely useless. In your desperation to begin again, You may come to realise that not only do you not know the way, you can no longer even see who you are. You are lost. The sudden pause feels like a threatening wilderness, and that strong sense of who you once were quickly unravels. The interesting thing about an involuntary pause is that there is a way to navigate through that lets you construct a new, more honest self from the experience. But first, you have to live completely in that pause for far, far longer than you want to and learn to reorientate in order to create a brand new map for your world. 8th of June 2017, the Bloomsbury Hotel, London. I'd been networking over lunch with clients of the technology company I founded. Next up, I was leading a discussion group, so I headed downstairs to the main hall to get set up. As I rounded the corner, I came face to face with my finance director, clearly on a call with my board of directors, at the very moment that he said, so we'll stick her on gardening leave then, effective immediately. Gardening leave is a fluffy term for dismissed, fired, given the chop, a kind of enforced isolation. We made eye contact. He knew I'd heard him. But in my shock, I just carried on into the hall and ran the workshop as planned. If anything, I was extra brilliant just to show them. By the time the afternoon finished, reality was no closer to setting in. So slightly drunk and very tearful, I got on a train and turned up on the doorstep of my best friend from high school. She took it surprisingly well. Only seven months earlier, I'd been on top of the world, one of those startup success stories. We'd closed an investment round in record time, MasterCard had selected us for a prestigious global program, we'd been top tech startup in Europe, and I'd won Innovator of the Year. Now, I was handing back my computer, my phone, and I was blocked from having any contact with the staff and clients I'd come to think of as my friends. I insisted on keeping the trophies. I said they could win their own if they didn't like it. They're still in a box as I have nowhere to put them. It wasn't completely unexpected. 
A miserable six months of conflicts had left me stressed, ill and defeated. My plans had been rejected, leaving my position as CEO unworkable. All the same, this ending, when it came, was brutal, sudden and incomprehensible. Almost 20,000 hours of work in just over five years, which averages 10.73 hours a day, seven days a week, to nothing. No calls, no email, nothing. Definitely an involuntary pause. The first Monday morning of the rest of my life, I got up, opened my new computer, and had literally no idea what to do next. Except I had an incredibly panicked sense that if I didn't do something, anything, and get started on it right now, I would be lost. What I've come to learn is that this rush to begin again is a normal response to an involuntary pause. One founder told me how he closed down his company in the morning, then wrote a panicked business plan for his rebound startup the same afternoon. But it is a response you should be ready to resist. You have to take your time, even though that vast expansion of time ahead is absolutely terrifying. I had one call that day, a call that changed my life. It was with a wonderful woman who had lived through a similar experience. She offered to coach me through my remaining nine weeks of gardening leave. Although I didn't understand it at the time, she was preparing a plan that would let me be present in and appreciative of the enforced stage of this involuntary pause. It provided the time, means and structure for reflection. I committed in writing that at least every week for the next nine weeks, I would visit a garden. Yeah, I took the whole gardening leave thing a bit too literally especially for somebody that lives on the river and doesn't even have a garden. And at that garden, I would take loads of pictures and post them to my new Instagram account because I was going to totally rule this whole gardening leaf thing. And without fail, by 3pm every Friday, I would send her a new garden selfie. This was genius on her part on so many levels. Firstly, gardens are cheap, accessible and beautiful destinations. They forced me outdoors, but in a way that did not require complex planning. For a plant lover like me, wandering around a garden forced me to be appreciative of the detail in the world around me. I also discovered it was impossible to stay angry in a garden. If you ever find yourself in an involuntary pause, find a physical environment that is your equivalent of a garden. Make this way you walk through your wilderness. One of the weirdest things I have felt through the last nine months, and what I've put most effort into fixing, is an incredible loss of my sense of self. Not just self-worth, though that was certainly part of it, but a complete crisis of personal identity and meaning. Mending that has taken as much work as any physical injury would. It's impossible to rush because you are literally making yourself again, and this takes time. There are no shortcuts, but I didn't understand that and so I wasn't prepared. My face had been the face of the company for so long that it no longer felt like my face. If other people had got sick of me popping up in their news feeds all the time, imagine how I felt being stalked around the internet by the far more successful version of my former self. It's pretty demoralising, 
I felt I didn't own my identity anymore. Like the company got to keep that as part of our divorce settlement. Yeah, I still got stuck with my face and name, which meant I was now constantly needing to explain to people that I was no longer working there. They always said the same thing. But you're the founder, it's your company, how does that work? I have no idea, no clue, do I look like I know? Go away! Mostly I avoided saying this out loud, uh, but not always. The single most constructive thing I did, though it was entirely by accident, was to regain control of my name and my narrative by writing. I wrote a lot, and by sheer chance, simply because I already owned the website domain, I started publishing that writing at vickybrock.com. Some weeks I'd write 20,000 words, and that writing hit a nerve with fellow founders and entrepreneurs, so I started to get an audience. People began to thank me for telling the realities of business like it really is, and so an audience turned into a mission. I even professionalised myself a bit and made a logo. And then one day, I didn't hate my picture anymore. It no longer stalked me around, making me feel like a total failure. So I stuck a purple filter on it and I put it on my blog. I'd originally begun writing because I'd felt completely excluded from my own narrative. I just wanted to process and understand my own story. But by writing and by linking that writing to my name as closely as I did, not only did I reclaim my narrative, I slowly rebuilt my personal identity. I became a cautionary tale, but it was my tale, and so I'm okay with that. The old stuff doesn't go away, but I drowned it out with the new. I started to create my travel journal through my wilderness, long before I understood what new path I might be on. Of course, the nine weeks of gardening leave weren't the end of my pause. They weren't my new beginning. It's taken nine months to feel I have fully transitioned through my pause period, to stand here at the start of a new beginning. It was a period of intense grief and numbed intellect. It took me a while to recognise it as grief. After all, who grieves for the loss of a company? Me, it turns out. I launched myself headlong into busy tasks. I started painting my flat only to abandon it halfway when I just couldn't stand it anymore. My living room is still half painted, which I am now trying to pass off as a cool design feature. I had a few job interviews before being forced to accept that like most entrepreneurs, I am completely unemployable. I came up with loads of startup ideas, most of them ridiculous, but I just couldn't summon up the stamina or the brain power. I had time, but no spark, no energy, and so that time felt very, very frightening. It was an intellectual wilderness too. I could have read a hundred books. I didn't. But I wasn't completely without a guide. One book, Transitions, was recommended to me by a politician who had lost her seat at the general election, and with it the career path that had laid so clearly ahead. It introduced the two concepts standing between me and my new beginning. The ending, every transition begins with one. Endings begin with something going wrong. The first, not the last act of your play. And the neutral zone, the pause if you like. An unproductive period where you're disconnected from the past, emotionally disengaged from the present, 
yet very, very slowly edging towards what will become a new future. The neutral zone can't be skipped. It's where you self-examine and repair. It's where you absorb internal and external input and process that to rebuild a new personal meaning. What you cross off the feature list of your next phase of life is just as important as what you include. I find myself standing here now with a deeply sharp sense of the people, interests and activities that I want in my life. I've emerged from my pause, writing, podcasting, working with startups that interest me, campaigning as a Women's Enterprise Scotland ambassador, caring more about my eulogy virtues than my resume virtues. I seem to have lost my capacity for ass-kissing and polite compliance. I have gained a frank openness that some people find rather alarming. I may have been forced off the route that I was on, but now I feel I'm a better person on a better path. Only my actions will tell, of course, but I have regained control of my narrative and my own journey in a way that before my pause had become lost. I am now ready for my new beginning. So, how do you avoid the pain of the involuntary pause? The point is, of course, that you can't. Just as you can't usefully prepare for it in any practical way. Even if, at a logical level, you know that there's a possibility you may fail in your studies, suffer a catastrophic injury that ends your sporting career, have your visa denied, have the event that you've spent a year planning cancelled for snow, yes, that one. If you always prepared for the worst, you would never achieve your very best. Instead, if, when, life challenges you to the extent that your previous map no longer applies, pause. Accept that the end is only the start, and your long pause is an essential step. Find a physical place where you will walk through your wilderness. Keep a travel journal as you go. Don't beat yourself up if you don't finish painting your living room. Celebrate that it served its purpose as a brainless task. Be ready to live deeply and completely in your pause for far, far longer than feels comfortable. Because it is in that pause that you will finally find the signs of what matters most and where you want to go next. It is where you will create your new map to a new beginning. You've been listening to Vicky Brock on a one-off episode of the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. Normal interviews will resume this week. Thank you. Thank you.